Welcome to Forward Obsessed, where we talk to breakthrough business leaders and rising entrepreneurs about their journeys, origin stories, and aha moments. Hi, my name is Robert Roach, and I'm the executive producer for Forward Obsessed. From the entire team here at Digital Surgeons and the Forward Obsessed podcast in New Haven, Connecticut, we'd like to thank you, the viewers and the listeners, for all of your support, your feedback, your energy, and your genuine excitement that you shared with us during the last year. And what an amazing year it's been. 20 episodes, 20 brilliant minds sharing the vast spectrum of entrepreneurial experience. We heard about the back of the napkin aha moments, the tooth and nail bootstrapping, overcoming every form of adversity, the hardest failures all the way up to those sweetest victories. We learned priceless lessons about building partnerships, scrappy fundraising, trusting others, learning to lead, pursuing curiosity, and finding that most elusive concept of all, a true purpose that guides every action in life. To our guests, we only have the deepest gratitude for their unique knowledge and for helping us make Forward Obsessed into what it's turned into today. As a parting gift, heading into 2023, we decided to compile the top moment from every episode as chosen by you, our viewers and our listeners, through your commenting, your sharing, and your engagement. It was tough to omit any piece of knowledge that our guests brought to the table. Every single episode is so unique, represents a completely different and brilliant perspective on what it really means to be an entrepreneur. I hope you enjoy these clips, take inspiration from these wonderful minds, and step into the new year refreshed and forward obsessed. So believability weighted decision making is this concept of making a decision, getting lots of opinions about that decision and weighing the opinions of the people who have accomplished what you're trying to accomplish more than the other opinions that you're getting, but making the decision for yourself and but just taking all of the perspectives in order to uh, kind of navigate your own blind spots and not tying your ego or your identity to outcomes. You know, yeah, you made a decision, but that's not you as a person. You can change that and edit yourself and edit the decisions you're making and that sort of thing and, and get a positive outcome as long as you keep trying. So many people are afraid uh, that someone's gonna like steal their idea or take something from them. The reality is everyone's busy. That's the other thing I've observed is <laughs> like, people are too busy to steal your idea. And especially in my, back in my movie career, right? It's it, there, especially, right? You think like, oh, I don't wanna pitch that idea because someone's gonna take it and run with it. And it's like, no, they're not. You have so much more to gain from sharing your ideas and putting them out there than you do like protecting them, you know, working on them until they're perfect. I think there's so much to be gained from just a beta, just throw it out there, you know, like get it going and then, and then see what happens and take those meetings and have those conversations and just be open and you will benefit from being open so much more than you will from being closed, you know, and that's like my mindset too. I have a very open mindset. I was at uh, rehabbing at Newington Children's Hospital. I had had a really tough day. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I used to have hours of PT, hours of OT. I was tired and I was just fucking done. I don't want to do this anymore. And I just wanted to give up. You know, my dad came in and I was probably crying and certainly feeling sorry for myself and just telling him, I'm done. I quit. 
I don't want to do this anymore. And he probably was like trying to talk to me out of it. And you know how kids can get whatever. I was just like, no, this is my way. I'm done. And he just like grabbed me by the shirt and he like looked me in the eye and he was like, Ari, your accident didn't fucking kill you. Don't let your attitude kill you. Mm. And, and I'll tell you what, I got so mad. I got goosebumps with that, man. That's, I got so yeah. mad. I was like, I'm going to do it just to fucking show him he's wrong. That's, that's like my attitude. Yeah. I was just pissed, but it was the right thing to say, and it was the right thing to do, and it was the right way to like shake me out of that rut I was in that was getting me nowhere. So, you know, one thing that we look for in an entrepreneur as well is, is the ability to test and learn and try new things and fail fast. And, you know, when you're young, right, you don't have a lot holding you back. You don't have a lot of obligations. You don't have a lot of financial stress. And so you do try new things because you have nothing to lose, right? Whereas as you get older, you, you start a family, you get a mortgage, you have debt or bills or what have you or college looming for your kids, you take less risky chances, right? On average, on average. So, you know, we, we look for entrepreneurs that, you know, have the hunger to ask the hard questions, that have the desire to test and learn and leverage data and fail quickly and iterate and not be afraid, right? Because when you stop taking risks, you, you really stop living in a lot of ways. I'm inspired by the craft beer movement. That, you know, when I grew up, there were like six beers. I mean, we're, we're flirting with 10,000 nationally now. Yeah. Diversity is beautiful. Human beings want different things, and that's wonderful. We ended up with the sort of the national brand thing that came out of the post-war movement, was enabled by communications and transportation vectors, limited shelf space. All of these things conspired to constrain what we got and how we lived. It wasn't as rich as it should be. I love the local brewer. Why? Because like they're into their craft. I see the direct-to-consumer movement is really craft commerce. Hmm. That I see a world where there's tens of thousands of these things that are human scale businesses. They're not big venture capital things angling for the exit and fueled by what's the next quarter from 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 the money behind them, but they're more human scale businesses. I love that. So yeah. you're you're arming the craft commerce, yeah. Craft commerce. You're arming you're arming these crafts women, craftspeople with insights that large enterprises don't have. I say this every day, I repeat this to myself. When you walk into a room and you're the only one that looks like you in the room, know that you're in the right room because that's where change happens. If you happen to look like the only person in that room, 10 times out of 10, there is going to be a shift. There's going to be a change because if you stay in the room, you will make that change. If you leave the room, it's going to be the same folks it's going to be the same thing. So stay in that room. It can be uncomfortable. That's for anyone. That's for any race, creed, denomination, gender. This yeah. is, I'm talking, speaking to everyone. Yeah. How old you are. If you're, old, if you're the only 98-year-old in the room, yeah. stay in the room. Somebody in there is going to need to hear from a 98-year-old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're only gay person it. in the room. Sure. Stay in that room. Yeah. If you're the only transgender, if you're only black, Latino, if you're only the only white male in the room, yeah. stay in that the room. Record. If you look at the people that do crazy stuff, like, like Travis Pastrana or the jackass guys, they're terrified and then they commit. Most people don't commit. They don't say yes. What I saw was you saying yes to every task. 
that was put in front of you? I had a science teacher in middle school, like seventh or eighth grade or something. It had a beaker full of water or some substance. He started pouring it and he said, commit to the pour uh, as he was pouring it. Because if you don't and you just slowly pour it, it dribbles down the side and it makes a whole mess and half of it gets in the container you're trying to pour into it and half of it ends up on the counter. And that visual has stuck with me for a long time of if you're going to go All into in. something, you just you're going to make a mess if you only go halfway and you go too slowly. I haven't really ever thought about it like this, but the way that you're putting it, I think all of that buildup of like tilting the cup, I tilt the cup really slowly, but then once it gets there, it's over. Yeah. You know, we have to move and, and, and go forward. I am off Instagram. I'm off Facebook. I have been for years. I will say that like the post Instagram life, take away all the distraction and all that shit, but like, the post-Instagram life of getting validation in real life from real people and, like, appreciating what that's like to get it sincerely from, like, one person who's close to you as opposed to... A hundred hearts. Yeah, it's like, I mean, damn, getting that back has been, like, the most rewarding piece of getting off social media. I love that. And holy yeah. shit, has social media gotten bad since I left? <laughs> I mean, not, you know, like, in that time, like... I can't even imagine how it would affect me psychologically now. Being an entrepreneur, we always talk about our wins. We always talk about what's going well. Watch TED Talks, whatever it is. You hear speakers on stage. Everyone only talks about the great. I mean, the, the amount of failures that people talk about is this much, but that's what got you to the level you're at. It's got me to the level I'm at. I'm going to make a lot more mistakes in the next five, 10 years, which will hopefully help us grow our business to 50 million. You know, that, that's that's just the way it works. There's no playbook for this. As many business books as there are, you're not going to be able to read them all to be able to know everything when you start a business. You just got to jump in and make mistakes. The job was actually going to be taking tried and true practices and technologies that have been battle tested for years in the private sector and just bring them to the government. For example, we turned the Department of Motor Vehicles, like in most states, is the most hated agency of all. People just love to rail on, and deservedly so, to one that now I, I get people kind of actually stop me to compliment on what a turnaround the DMV was. When they need to do something now more than anything, they can do it online. Most of the time in the past, you had to go in the office and take half a day off of work and wait in this, some hideous line. Was this hard? Technically speaking, no. If you're from the tech industry, it just make you cry how simple the, the actual like, technology and the process work is. But it was like getting the right people involved. We got a team together. We know how to manage IT projects, and we did it. The, my last three trips to the DMV have been in and out. Um, yeah. It's almost shocking how quickly it, it was. Right. So, again, that was a, a bit of an aha and maybe an underwhelming way, but just like sometimes the solutions to problems is less complicated than you might think it is, and don't try to overcomplicate it. Like if, there, if there's a simple path to get something done, you know, <laughs> take the simple path and make it as, uh, make it as easy as possible. I think that's, that was one. You said something when we were doing the research that really struck me, which is, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to seek help all the time. What's some advice that you'd give to me and others like me who need the advice, want the advice, but don't know how to ask for it? I think a mentoring relationship is one way to do that. You know, uh, it, it's an implied ask for help. And it's less asking for help and more a conversation. Um, so, so do I just send Jenny an email and say, Jenny, will you be my mentor? Yeah. Like, so like a mentor is an intentional thing. Careful, you might get that email. Uh, that's fine. I, I mentor a lot of people, but it's that I want to learn and grow from other people's experiences. So one thing, I'm, I'm a very impatient person. I'd rather take a set of experiences that I can use as my own and pay it forward 
Like this is how I talk about with Bolster Prime with our CEOs. Hey, like we can tell you how all of this works. And, and trust me, it works like this for everybody. I know you think you're different from everybody, but it works like this for everybody. So you can take that set of experiences, use them as your own and go forward. But like, then you're going to run into these things that they are unique. They are unique problems. You get to spend your time on those. And then you get to learn them and unlock those and share those with other people. Like having a mentoring relationship with someone where they know what you know, and they also then know what you don't know, and they help you get there. That's a way to ask for help without actually saying, I need help. Interesting. The beauty of work is that when it's fun, you want to do it forever. When it sucks, you know, you know you're not in the right space and you need to move on. Life is too short. I mean, my dad died at 56. My mom died at 65. I'm 45. I look at, hey, I got 20 years if I do my life expectancy. So I'm more than two thirds of the way through my life. I want to have fun for the next 20 years. If I'm having fun, then I'll keep doing it. Um, but I really want to change people's lives too. I think the people that work for me and my board knows it and supports it at iCleanse is when we do have an exit or we do create huge revenues, we share that wealth. That's the best thing you can do. Right? And that's the most fun I ever had at iDevices was when we peeled off the 5 million and we put that bonus pool together. And I, I sat down with everybody and said, here's what your stock's worth. Here's what we're giving you. And this is your total nut. And you'd watch people's faces just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm getting this amount of money. And not that money is the end all and be all, but you did change people's lives. People could put a college fund together for their child. They could buy a house maybe that they couldn't before. Renovate a house. Renovate a house or you know, go on that trip as a family vacay. And that's life-changing. At the end of the day, I'm at the age where I'm not that old, but I still think about my legacy. I want my kids to know that when I'm gone, dad was a good person. Dad took care of his people. He treated everybody equally. He made a difference in the world that was positive. And if I die with zero in the bank, which is my goal, right? I enjoy spending money and donating money and doing venture capital. If I die with zero in the bank and my kids know that, then I've led a good life and that's all you can ask for. And dad also had a badass car collection. <laughs> There's this benefit that I think about a lot in building businesses that comes from not knowing what you're doing. Ignorance is bliss sometimes. A, a little <laughs> bit, but it's the first time and just approaching it with fresh eyes. You only get to have fresh eyes once. Yeah. A big believer of this that's like well-known in the business community is obviously Richard Branson and he named his company Virgin. And it's like this whole idea of like, we're total virgins. We don't know what we're doing. And so then they started all these different diverse right. things. There's huge benefit to that. It's the same thing. The venture capital firm that I'm run is called Outsiders Fund. That's that same idea of like, you're an outsider, like you have no idea. That benefit of not knowing means that you may find different ways. It also means that you may take different risks and just approach things completely differently. And from an odd scenario, the odds that you come up with like a new, better way to do something are much greater than if you were already an expert in the space. But when you ask that question, the jockey or the horse, and you say oh. you taught a class in this, can you just articulate for the audience here what that means? Sure. So age old debate in venture capital, it's are you betting on the founder and the team or are you betting on the big market and product market fit? Jockey is doesn't matter what the product is, doesn't matter what the market is, you get the right person, they're gonna just work and work and work until they find the market and, and they'll be successful. And the horse is, doesn't really matter that much who the founding team is because you get a big enough market and you get a good product, you're gonna succeed almost in spite of the founding team. And you taught this at Yale with Miles Lasseter? Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, we taught a class on venture capital and innovation. Got it, so what is it for you? So for me, it's obviously it's both. To answer your question, I, I, for me it's really jockey. And I think we see it all the time, right? So these serial entrepreneurs 
entrepreneurs, I know it's cliche, but when you bet on the serial entrepreneur, so somebody who's been successful once before, you, got, you had Chris Allen, and then you've got Al, and Andre Swanston, you've got all these people who've been successful multiple times. Josh has been successful in multiple roles. And so somebody who's been successful once, they very often understand what it takes to be successful a second time. The data so supports the fact that the repeat entrepreneurs do well, that leads me to believe that it's really about the jockeys. So what is the future of entrepreneurship in Connecticut? What do you think? Well, it's not unique to Connecticut. Uh, if we don't stay the most entrepreneurial country in the world, we're going to be losers. Countries, if you study history, win and lose when they lose their entrepreneurial gene. And, uh, you know, when it comes to Connecticut, I think we're getting it back. Down there in Stanford, it was all financial services. And then the UBS building emptied out. And GE left. They all disappeared overnight. But now we've got DCG, Digital Currency Group, the next generation of fintech is moving in in New Haven is the life sciences. We weren't too good at computer science around here um, going back 30 years, but when it comes to life sciences, Yale and Quinnipiac and UConn, we've got the best and the brightest able to do this. So, um, you know, take advantage of your skills where you got the wind to your back. So a mental model that some people have about investing is like, I'm going to sit back and I pick which stock to put my money on. And I think the best investors and VCs are feeling like this is a founder I can help support. And the way that we're all going to make money is by creating value and building and growing. So it's not the sense that the investor is going to do the work, but it's that you're involved in a value creation process rather than betting on horses or picking process. I recently found myself in a situation a few months ago where the founder thought I was overstepping and trying yeah. to be the CEO when I wasn't. Maybe it was just the founder and his ego. I think that understanding what that role investor is, what are the times and ways in which offering advice or direction is welcome and needed. It's a lot less than you might think. And what I've found is, you know, building a relationship and rapport and trust with the founder, asking questions only when they really explicitly say, I want advice. Do you offer advice? That's what I've found to be the most successful way to engage as an investor. When I met you, we were at a cultivator's space, and it was my first time meeting you. And we were with, I think it was like six or so other guys. The whole purpose of me going was to meet you. And I remember that the entire experience sort of shifted to these other six guys, and they sort of walked in front of us and took the tour and were dominating the conversation, and you and I fell back. The whole purpose was to meet this phenom, this incredible human, Meg Sanders. And then everybody sort of gravitated to the guys, conversations and you and I fell back and you're like, yeah, that always happens. How do we stop that from happening? What is it that men need to learn? What is it that women need to do? I love it. I'm very passionate about this. Take a seat at the table. Women often won't. They'll sit in the back, not in the front. I always am right in the middle of the table and I always raise my chair. Always, always. Tallest person. It's one of those things where how do you how do you command more just by body? It's a trick. So seat at the table, always, always find the seat at the table. I don't care if you have to kick somebody out. I don't care if you have to have people move over and squeeze a chair in, get a seat at the table. Don't wait to be invited because it's not coming, not coming. So there's that aspect of what can women immediately do to make sure that they are involved. The second thing is have that one conversation with the person that stood back with you and say, this always happens. And I also have opportunities and times when I'm the only one at the table and no one even acknowledges or notices or thinks about it just doesn't even cross their minds and I'm like do you know how exhausting this is I don't play golf I don't give a fuck what your golf score is I don't care about any of that shit you want to talk football I'll talk football with you all day long and it's easier to talk to their buddy than it is to talk to me it's just easier so how do men help be an ally 
be the one guy that makes sure if there's a woman standing behind you or sitting behind you says what are you doing come up here and if anybody interrupts her when she's speaking you say I'm sorry I really need to hear Sally needs to say right now so can you please hold off on your comment be brave be vulnerable and put yourself out there modeling the right behavior is what I'm hearing you say model it and demand it in your organization mm. and if it happens in front of you be the one that stops it this is another lesson of economics, mm -hmm. which is well called the declining marginal utility. Uh, the first pair of shoes you get prevents your feet from getting cut. Then you can have dress shoes, you could have sneakers, you could have flip flops. But by the time you're Imelda Marcos, you know, the extra shoe after you've gone 50, whatever, 60 pairs, you can't wear them. I think the same thing is true of sugar. The first teaspoon of sugar takes away the bitterness. The second adds some flavor. And that's where you should stop. You don't need to go to 12. People think about going to extremes, zero or 120 calories, zero teaspoons or 12. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. One or two is, I think, still okay. We're going to talk about the notion of losing. You get the feeling in your stomach when you lose. You hate to lose. Big deal, sports game, whatever it may be. You're buying a house, you lose it. What I've learned through the years is losing is the foundation of winning every time. And what you do about the losing becomes the most valuable lesson you could ever do. It's so crucial in business to learn how to lose. And I always say to people, if you lose a million dollar deal, I'm gonna take a million dollars of value out of that losing experience. Mm. And that million dollars I get to invest in winning. That is one lesson and I'm much better at it. I still get that little pit in my stomach because I don't like to lose, but I immediately go into, okay, time to extract the winning hand out of the losing experience. That happens every day. Yeah, I just lost a deal last week and it I could tell it's still bugging me. you because you're a winner. Jumping out of the job, there's obviously lots of risk, right? Sure. Which some people thrive in uncertainty, but most people have like mental health issues when it comes to anything sure. that's uncertain. So what would you tell that person about what you think that they could do in hindsight to break out of that, to figure out a way to convince their managers to give them more work or to add more value to the company? Is there a way to do that in your opinion? You hit on the key word, which is risk. Everything in a startup is associated with risk. It's how do you manage risk? How do you mitigate risk? Jumping into a startup can feel risky to people at a large, stable company. You know, you don't have any control over your own fate at a large company. If they shut down your division, you're done. So that to me is risky. Being at a startup, you control your own destiny. So from a risk perspective, do you want to control your risk or do you want to leave that up to somebody else? I think you have way more control at a startup. Thank you for listening to Ford Obsessed. Please share this episode, subscribe, and leave a review on your podcast app. This episode was hosted by Pete Senna and David Salinas from the Digital Surgeons Podcast Studio in New Haven, Connecticut. Special thanks to our AV crew, Steve Walter and Meg Olson. Ford Obsessed is produced by Robert Roach. If you'd like to contact our team, visit us at fordobsessed.com.